morning, Grace Covenant Church. My name is Andrew Woods. I heard that. Um, I'm one of the elders here, and it is my pleasure to bring to you the Word of God this morning. If you would open your Bibles to the 50th Psalm, Psalm 50. The first week of every month, we go to the book of Psalms, and most people are probably more aware of Psalm 51 than they are aware of Psalm 50. It's the one we like to go to, the one we get to see David's confession. It's sweet and heartfelt, and we love it, and it's good. But we do us a disservice when we don't slow down and read Psalm 50. Over the past few months, around the dinner table, on the couch, and even at the foot of a bunk bed, the Woods family have been having conversations about the end. Questions are being asked, will we know when Christ comes back? Will we see him? Will there be second chances? How can the whole world see Christ when he comes? Will we hear the trumpet? These conversations have been both comforting and scary. So let me ask you, are you having these conversations? Around your table, on your couch, at the foot of your bed? How about in your own head? If you haven't been having these conversations, Psalm 50 won't let you escape them. So let's go to the word of God this morning. A Psalm of Asaph. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. Say law. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil 
and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Hear the word of God for you this morning. Now, as we begin this psalm of judgment, not a a sweet psalm of encouragement, but a psalm very clearly of judgment, we see a new author for us this morning, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph being this man that that God has definitely chosen, and so has David, to be um, the chief priest before the ark. And we see a few different Asaphs that come throughout history, but this is his job to sing, to write songs for the Lord to be sung. And this is his psalm that for us is going to be helping us see some things very clearly about that question, what happens in the end? So if you are a person who likes to organize your notes from church, it's going to begin like this, the setting, verses one through six. And then as we move on from the setting of this psalm, we're going to go into the formalist, which will be verses 7 through 15. For those of you who have been walking along in our Pilgrim's Progress, this should be perking your ears. And in fact, so will the next section uh, in verses 16 through 22, the hypocrite. And And then in the last two verses, we get the application. That's how you can... Uh, Go ahead and dissect your psalm this morning. Maybe that can be helpful for you as we continue. But we begin in the first six verses that Asaph, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is going to give us such a clear setting of this psalm that it's actually startling. When you read this psalm slowly and you read these first few verses, it should enact in you fear. The very beginning of this psalm starts off with naming three names for God. It really is startling when you read it. And this is hardly, uh, there, there is no discrepancy in other translations. For the most part, almost all good translations say it the exact same way. And in fact, a famous Baptist systematic theologian, which I'm sure you're all like, yes, please tell us, who is that? Uh, John Gill tells us that this is actually the Trinity. He's saying all three are here in these three different names. And you might be thinking, ah, it might be a stretch. And it might be. But what we'll see in the Mighty One is actually what's used in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 5, describing Christ. Then we have a general name for God, and then we have the covenantal name of God in Yahweh. So here we have the beginning of this psalm really focusing on a mighty God, a strong God, the covenantal God. 
And as this is happening, we begin to see what our setting is. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. We're actually in the middle of a courtroom hearing. And what God is doing is this mighty covenantal God is going to speak and in so doing, he summons the earth, all of it, all the people of the entire world, everyone. He summons them to himself. It tells us out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. God is no longer just in Zion, but he's shining out throughout all the earth as he summons the entire earth unto himself. And verse 3 tells us almost in a way that should make you a little nervous, our God comes. This is something that is looked forward to in both the Old Testament and in the New Right In the New Testament, we as Christians are saying, yes, come Lord Jesus. But in the Old Testament, they were waiting upon the day of the Lord. Now, I believe those are the same thing. But in the Old Testament, the mindset was, here comes the judgment. This is the day of the Lord. And so the psalmist says, our God comes and he will not keep silence. So as they were awaiting this judgment, when God had been silent, it was almost like, okay, uh, maybe um, things aren't really happening. Or, or maybe we can be calm because we're not hearing anything from the Lord right now. But no, that's not what they are to be anticipating. They are to be anticipating that God is coming. He will not keep silence. His voice will be heard by all the earth. Now, in his coming, we get the description in verse 3, and it should remind you of Mount Sinai. You guys remember that? When the Ten Commandments were given, it was a little spooky, right? There were clouds, there was a storm, there was lightning, there was shaking. People were terrified. And when God comes, he will be like a devouring fire. And around him will be a mighty tempest. So we see this fire that is burning forth is a devouring fire of his righteousness and of his perfect judgment, which will burn away all sin in his path. And also surrounding this fire is this mighty tempest, this mighty storm expressing the fear of something that is completely other than us in power and making humans feel weak and vulnerable. This is the setting of the psalm that we're reading this morning. What happens next is that God calls witnesses. So here we have this courtroom drama. The entire world is already present, and God and his majesty and his might is coming. And as he comes, he calls to himself witnesses. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth. He calls for the heavenly beings and to his creation to witness to the coming judgment. Are you feeling the weight of this psalm yet? Some of you might be saying, that's right. I can't wait for that day. 
When God comes in all of his judgment and the whole world is there and he smites those heathens. And I can be there saying, yeah, that's right. But that's not what this psalm says. In fact, the very next words should strike fear into your heart because he calls the heaven and the earth to be his witnesses as he judges his people. Wait, what? No, that was for them. That's not for me. Yes, it's for you. God calls these witnesses to judge his people. He says, gather to me my faithful ones. Okay, that makes me feel a little bit better. At least he's calling me a faithful one, right? Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Now, this is covenant renewal language. If you go back to Exodus chapter 24, we see this playing out with Moses and the people of God. Exodus chapter 24, verses 3 through 8 say this, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai. And the 12 pillars, according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. This is the people of God receiving the covenant of God. And then what we have here in the end, or what's looking forward to the end, is saying, gather to me my faithful ones who made that covenant with me by sacrifice. Yes, you guys, come here. And what we see is that the people of God in this courtroom drama are the defendants. And God is to be the judge. The witnesses the heavenly beings, the earth, they understand whose court they're in. What does their testimony say? The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Again, we're setting the scene here of the judgment that is to come. You have the mighty one, God, Yahweh who's perfect in righteousness and his power is so intimidating and he's calling all the people and then what does the psalmist do? He says, Selah. Remember what Selah means? You should, because I tell you it every time I preach, right? It means to pause, to meditate, to think about what you just heard. So do that. The one who is perfectly righteous, the heavens declare his righteousness, that is your judge. And so then, with this setting, we go into two different types of people. Two different types of people that God is coming for. 
Remember, God does not keep silence. He is coming. The judge is coming. He begins this way. God says, Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. The Lord begins his testimony against his people by calling them to hear what they have done. But he doesn't just say, hey, if you want to, he commands them, you will hear this. Regardless if you want to or not, you will hear my testimony against you. Now he's using covenantal language again. Oh, Israel. He is talking about the people of God. And then he begins by saying, after he's told them, he will testify against them, I am God, your God. Again, this is reminiscent of Exodus. This is reminiscent of Exodus chapter 20. And what I think is happening in our psalm this morning is in these two groups of people, you are going to see the two tables of the law. You're going to see the first table, which is the first four commandments about the worship of God. And then in the second group, you're going to see the next six, which are talking about how man relates to each other. And you're going to see God's rebuke against both. But God begins the Ten Commandments like this. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. If you're an extra credit student, write down Deuteronomy 6, 4. That's another place where you're going to see this same type of language because it's the second law, right? Deuteronomy, second law, okay? So we see Deuteronomy is going to repeat the same things, but we're going to see this now mirrored in 7 through 15 and 16 through 22. And listen to this. Because this is what should strike you this morning. He is testifying against them, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. This is why this part of your sermon is entitled, The Formalist. Because he is not rebuking them for how they follow the rules. They seem to be doing that really well. God tells them, your, your sacrifices are continually before me. They're not going away. I keep seeing them. They have the forms of their religion down. The priests know what they're doing. They know how to make sacrifices. They know when to make sacrifices. And they know what to make sacrifices for. They understand what they're doing. But we begin to see that the rebuke is not about how they do things, but the heart that lies behind them. Specifically, these people who are making the sacrifices to God don't really understand who God is. And that's what we see in his rebuke. As he continues to unpack in this tense, hot, like it feels in here, courtroom drama. What God is doing is saying, yeah, yeah, I get that you know the rules to follow. Do you think I need to eat? Do you keep doing these things because you think I need help? Do you think I need your sacrifices because I'm hungry? God is flabbergasted by the people. 
They don't know who their God is. They might know all the rules, but their heart is clueless. They believe by their actions that they're somehow helping God. I don't need your bulls, God says. I own them all. I don't need you to feed me. The world is mine. I own everything in it. You think I have need? Do you think I eat the flesh and blood of goats? This reminds me of Numbers, uh, Balaam's testimony. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. God is testifying against them that their worship might check the boxes, but they don't even realize who their God is. Their God is unchanging, needing nothing, and he owes them nothing. Then comes God's admonishment to the first group. What does God say? What are they to do? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Now, for my astute Old Testament scholars out there, you're going, that is an actual sacrifice. I remember Leviticus 7. Great job. Write that in your notes. Leviticus 7, verses 12 through 15, actually unpack that there is an offering of thanks. But what's so interesting about the offering of thanks is that it's not required. It's not a box that needs to be checked. It's out of the overflow of their heart that they would give this to the Lord. Now that's interesting. Because the significance of the sacrifice was a heart attitude towards God. Being thankful for his most glorious grace his deliverance, and his answered prayer. This was a reckoning to remember God didn't want ritual, but he wanted a relationship with his covenantal people. A thankful people are a people of praise, a people who will glorify God, which is exactly what he wants. Now we see this in the very next Psalm. I know it's not the same author. I know it's David next time. Right? But in Psalm 51, verses 16 through 17, and remember, it's all inspired by the Holy Spirit. So it actually is the same author. But Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 says, For you will not, not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. This is what God wants. And friends, this morning, oh, how we gaze in a mirror. You who come to church every Sunday religiously, thinking somehow this helps God, or that simply by your rote ritual, you will somehow garner blessings, thinking that your steady church attendance will somehow save your soul. Or for the steady tither who fancies themselves holy because God needs their money. God doesn't need you. He's not anxious if we don't pack this house every Sunday. If we don't make the budget for the month. He needs nothing because he owns everything. So instead of depending on acts of outward righteousness for your salvation, offer God your heart. 
your love. Be thankful for the lavish grace upon your life and repent of your formalist lifestyle and desire the relationship over the ritual. I'm not done because neither is the psalmist. That was the formalist. And note how God started that one off. He was endearing, actually. He was calling his people. So here it is, before all the world, all the people of the earth, all the heavenly beings, all of creation, he calls the people unto himself, and he says, my people, what are you doing? And now note how he starts this next section for the hypocrite. It is wholly different. It is not even on the same plane. But to the wicked, God says. Oh, that doesn't sound like, oh, oh, Israel. Oh, my people. But he's calling them in this same moment for people who are claiming to be godly ones. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my, to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? He states that his statutes and his covenant were on their lips. Why? Well, yes, they were claiming to be of the covenant people of God, but I think more specifically, this is talking about people who were teaching the statutes and the law. See how much more strictly he's coming down upon them. These teachers were wicked because although the statutes and the covenant were on their lips, they hated the discipline they preached. Now that is a word for me. As I sit here and bring to you the word of God, I need to be humbled to hear this as well. This is for us all, but I just want you to, to hear that I'm not up here pretending like this hasn't been beating me up all week. They cast the Lord's words behind them. Can you imagine that? It's literally, you can, it's like a cartoon, right? I, I'm, I'm staring at this like cartoon panel of these you know, holy looking people who are speaking the words of God and in the next panel of the cartoon, they're just flying right behind them, have, have no impact on their life whatsoever. It's so cool, God's word, because when it is talking about that they don't keep his words or his statute or his law, it means that his covenant or his law is not in front of them. It's not guiding their own lives. It's not allowing it to renew their minds. The Psalms talk about this all the time, right? Psalm 1 talks about this really clearly. The Proverbs talk about seeking after these words and allowing them to actually change you. Oh, my son, if you would just listen to these words and bind them around your neck. There is a reality that God doesn't just want people to say his words, but he wants it to affect their hearts. And then he gets real specific. And this is why I said this first part with the formalist was about how they didn't understand how to worship God. This second part is that these people are actually breaking these commandments. He begins, if you see a thief, you are pleased with him. This is the sixth commandment. 
thou shalt not steal. And you're like, well, he, he didn't steal, Andrew. <laughs> but that's not actually the word of the Lord. It doesn't just mean don't steal. It means you shouldn't be wanting to steal. You shouldn't be happy when other people, you know, do a bank robbery. And you're like, oh, of course, I, I don't believe any of that. But deep down in your heart, are you desiring those things that these people took? Is there sometimes a righteousness when you read that in the paper that something got robbed or stolen and you're like, yeah, take that. I hope you guys uh, got what was coming. But it gets worse. Because if you see a thief and you are pleased with him, this is about the people actually being around these type of people and being okay about being in their company which is something Psalm 1 and the Proverbs beat down really hard. And it gets worse. It keeps going, right? Right after about the thieves, it talks about the adulterers. Thou shalt not commit adultery, the seventh commandment. And what he's telling us is that keeping company with those who are openly sinning against God is dangerous company to keep. Now, some of you are saying, but Andrew, I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing to these people. Ah, oh, that's a good distinction. If we're thinking about this for ourselves, there's a difference about what the psalmist is talking about and evangelism. If you are spending time with a group of people because you are wanting to share the gospel with them, praise be to God. But if you are spending time with a group of people because your heart lies with these friends, these people that you want to spend time with, you admire what they're doing, what they're thinking, how they're acting, you are accompanying them in their sin. If you knew someone was cheating on their spouse and you thought, I like this person, I want to spend more time with them, hear their stories of treachery, what? I mean, I would hope that all of us in this room would say, of course not. I would not want to spend time with a person like that. I would want to tell them, what are you doing? Stop. And then what's given the most attention in this psalm is lying. You shall not bear false witness the Eighth Commandment. These so-called teachers of the law, of statutes, of the covenant, these people who are called the people of God, or at least calling themselves the people of God, have given their mouth completely over to evil. Remember, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It has gotten so bad that their tongue is continually framing deceit. Now I could get John up here to tell us about how you frame a movie and how you frame a scene. And I want you to think about that for a minute because if you are one given over to lying, all of your words are framing something the entire time. You're being deceitful the entire time. You're speaking to other people. You're not wanting them to know the truth, so you're leaving that out of the frame and you're trying to show them something else which is completely false. You are constantly framing deceit. 
It gets to a point where nobody can trust a word that they're saying because they are constantly lying. And it has gotten so bad that the wicked literally have given their brother over to their lying and falsely blemish their name. This is what it talks about in slandering. Slandering in the Hebrew literally means to give someone over to something. And in this instance, it's falsehood. So he's literally giving his brother over to falsehood. He is speaking so falsely about his own brother because he has framed that deceit and he has given his mouth over for evil. Now hear me and remember the beginning of this psalm. Our God comes and he does not keep silence. So for those that were speaking this way, here in this psalm, right? This, this group of people, these hypocrites, no more silence is for them. God is coming. Now, in God keeping silence, I think jumping to the New Testament might be helpful for us. Maybe this will keep you awake so you're not nodding off back there. Second Peter Chapter 3, verses 8 through 13. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Tell me, what does this psalm sound like when God is coming in a burning fire and in a tempest? As he calls everyone in front of himself and he brings down judgment on the people. Let me ask you, what life ought you to be living? And in the silence, it somehow gave the people here the wicked confidence to keep being wicked. Oh, it's okay. God's not doing anything. And really, this whole part for this group can be boiled down to this simple turn of phrase. You thought I was one like yourself. You thought I was one like yourself. This psalm from the very beginning has been contrasting how magnificent the Lord is versus how sinful man is. God speaks and the universe listens. Everything about him is declared perfectly righteous. He is the celestial judge who comes with a devouring fire in the midst of the tempest. And you think I was one like yourself, a man whose mouth has free reign for evil, who likes theft, adultery, and lying? Apparently they thought so. 
Surely God will overlook these sins. I can continue sinning that grace may abound. No one will know that I actually long to steal away my time with God and spend it on my own passions. As long as I say the right thing in front of people, I can act however I want behind closed doors. God won't care that my closest companions are those who betray their trust of their spouses and that I lust after their stories of treachery against them. As long as I teach others not to commit adultery, what does it matter? And although the words of God are true and pure and righteous, my words need not be. I will give my words over to framing a story so that I am made much of or so it comes out as an advantage for me. God will forgive. Well, here is the main charge that God says. They thought that God was sinful like them. They thought he'd give an awkward chuckle, (laughs) a wink, a nod, a shove on the shoulder. Because he doesn't really care. And the reality is they had forgotten God. That sounds so familiar, doesn't it? So-called Christians do the same. Christians, even amongst us in this sanctuary, are acting like practical atheists. You claim God on your lips, but in your heart you think God is just like yourself. You lie and you lust and you steal, all the while thinking God will look the other way on these things. Friends, you have forgotten God. He is holy Holy, holy, and though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, our God is perfect and power, love, and purity. He's not like you. So what is the application of this psalm? We see the reverse order in how they deal with the application or how the psalmist deals with the application. He begins with the wicked, those who forget God. What is there to happen to them. When you think on the last day, how we started this sermon off, what will be the, the last day for them? They will be torn apart with none to deliver. Although God has gathered his people for judgment, not all people who call themselves God-fearers are actually that. And in the end, like Psalm 1 says, the wicked are like chaff that the wind blows away. They will not stand in the judgment because they have sinned and cast the words of the Lord behind them. They will receive the perfect judgment in the burning fire of the tempest. For the faithful ones, what was their application? The terrifying reality of the hypocrite, the wicked ones, the ones who have forgotten God and think he is just like them should awaken and startle the true believer. God reminds them what he told them before. This is what he wants. This is their application. A heart of thankfulness to God is what glorifies him. Not the blood of bulls. Out of an abundantly thankful heart to God for the forgiveness of sins, for the salvation he has provided them, the faithful will turn from their wicked ways and order their way out of a gratitude and not a ritual. God looks and knows and understands the human heart. He wants your heart, not your works. So in conclusion, 
consider the question we began. With we began. With we began with, you understand. What happens in the end? When you die, or when Jesus returns, as you have heard about the judgment of the people of God, I'm assuming a lot of you who are in here are claiming to be that people. As you may sit here and say that you have been sprinkled by the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you claim to be a description, how would you describe the end yourself? And how would you describe what will happen to yourself? Are you here because you believe that you have to help God along? Are you continuing this ritualistic obedience with a heart that doesn't even understand who your God is? Stop thinking that your works will produce fruit and love God. Offer up your gratitude for the forgiveness of your sins for your salvation, a salvation that was completely accomplished outside of your works. A salvation that was given to you. A salvation that was completed by the one who was infinitely perfect. A life marked by purity and love. One whose sacrifice appeases the burning wrath of God amidst the tempest of his own power. That man, Jesus Christ. The way, the truth, and the life. And the only way to get to the Father. Hebrews 13, 15 helps us here. It says, through him, Christ, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. This, this, friends, is an offering of thanksgiving. This is what God wants. Or maybe this morning you've realized, amidst God's earthly courtroom, that you are one of those who claim to be a Christian, claim to be one of those covenantal people, but realize that you're no different from the world. You don't have a heart of thankfulness to God because your heart loves sin. What is your answer to my question? I'll give you your answer. You will be torn to pieces with none to deliver. Those aren't my words. Those are the inspired words of God. Friends, may this not be your fate this morning. Do not forget that there is a God and that he has provided a way in which you can be saved from this promised destruction. The call goes out for all to hear this morning. Repent and believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. It really is that simple. Believe in Christ. Look to him. Turn away from your wicked sins because of the salvation he gives you. Friends, stop pretending. 
Stop pretending this day. What will people think of me? They've seen me come to church for months and months. They've, they've heard me even come up and teach sometimes. Stop pretending. If that's you, seek the forgiveness of Christ. He offers it to all who come. I'll end with something I overheard from a young man last Sunday. He answered a question in a small group of people about following Christ. And this young man, he said, why wait? Why wait to follow Christ? Why indeed? For our, God, for our God comes with a burning fire, a raging tempest. He comes to judge his people. Will you be found covered by the blood of Christ, having put your faith in him, sealed with the Holy Spirit, and promised to be raised on that day? Or will you have forgotten God and have none to deliver you? Christ bids you come. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are sinners in desperate need of your salvation. Father, as you have providentially brought us to Psalm 50 this morning, as we tremble at hearing of your celestial courtroom, as we see the end in which the judgment occurs, may we not be the wicked. May we not be content to let your words fall behind us. May they renew our minds. We are sinners, God, and yes, we will continue to be until you call us home to Christ. But let us be sinners who know our sin, who repent of it, who hate it, and who are constantly thankful for the mercy and grace found in Christ, the one who bids us to come to him, the one who promises us forgiveness of our sins, the one who tells us that he is the only way to the Father and the ones that promise and the one that promises us that he will raise us on the last day. It is in his name I pray this morning, Father. In Christ's name, amen.